Hello and welcome to another episode of Sounds Like Comics, the podcast devoted to all things comic books in movies and TV. I'm Luke. And I'm Jay. Welcome to the podcast. Today's topic, Star Trek, the Genesis trilogy, the classic trilogy of Star Trek movies, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, and Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. Taking us from a deadly villain, a tragedy on the Enterprise, and to a heartwarming reunion, this special episode explores the classic saga. And it's special because this is episode 200 of Sounds Like Comics. Yeah, unbelievable we got here. <laughs> episode 100, we reviewed Zack Snyder's Justice League because we didn't want episode 100 just to be another episode. So that's what we chose to make it a bit special. And when we were brainstorming, what could we do for episode 200? And we've reviewed quite a lot of Star Trek. Most recently, last episode, Star Trek Prodigy. So it would have been a recent Star Trek episode. We kind of came up with the idea of reviewing the Genesis trilogy during an episode so we yeah. thought we've said it now so we're gonna we're gonna stick to it so this is a little bit different for us ordinarily we would review a season or more retrospective go back and look at a tv series multiple seasons that are since finished but this is the first time that we have reviewed this is essentially going to be three film reviews in one so it's a bit different for us so what we should say this is your warning we will be talking spoilers for star trek two three and four but the the genesis trilogy i've discussed this with star trek fans not everybody is aware that this is an actual thing ordinarily a trilogy would start with the first film end with the third but we're not talking star trek the motion picture which i think at some point we're gonna have to do we'll have to do of all the tv series we've done we're going to start with two we're going to move forward we'll have to go back but a unconventional trilogy started with two ending with four but it all revolves around genesis so i thought it's a bit of a interesting take on the trilogy and a great pick for a 200 episode anniversary special yeah and for those of you who think that's weird i don't remember it being a trilogy uh it does the rocky thing where the wrath of khan finishes and then search for spock picks up pretty much where it left off and fact even starting with the ending of that as it's before it's opening credits and then that finishes and they're on vulcan in a bird of prey and then the voyage home starts from that exact point not like a little bit of time's passed but they're still on vulcan with a bird of prey and they have to go home um and that's how it works as as like as i said like rocky is the the one I really think of in terms of a style that the they established for the all those films. Um 
the easiest thing for us is once you you just got to name the cast members for the Enterprise, and that covers all three films. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's other cast members added, but yeah, the main cast they are reoccurring, just like just like in the the TV series. So we'll start with well, the obvious place to start: Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. It is the second film in the Star Trek film series, following Star Trek: The Motion Picture, and is a sequel to the original series episode. Space Seed, that first aired in 1967. The original series, I've got to be honest, is an area of Star Trek, and of course it's where it all started, where I'm not that familiar. I know the cast, the characters, but I was first introduced to Star Trek with the films, the original cast films, and of course, Star Trek, the next generation. So it's like my knowledge of the original series crew is mainly from those films. So when doing prep for this, and then just reading things like William Shatner at first wasn't too sure about the idea of playing a older Kirk, like a Kirk that now wears reading glasses you know he's not the young captain i think at the time he was saying you know with some makeup maybe i could still play him younger so for me kirk had always been and the rest of the crew these older characters but just for the benefit of this review last night for the first time i actually watched space seed star trek yeah. All Star Trek is available on Paramount Plus, and the original series episodes have been remastered, and they look great. The colours really pop. But you know what? When you get to the physical showdown, have you seen this episode recently? Not recently, no. I think I last saw it back in like 2005, somewhere around there. Well, I'm sure this will ring true for you. When Kirk... Khan are fighting. Honestly, it's clearly a stuntman. And I'm saying that because they don't hide the fact that it's a different actor. I'm talking a side view and front view of the stuntman what's fighting Khan, and it's clearly not William Shatner. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it's because it's been restored and maybe it, obviously TVs back then would have been smaller so the, and grainier so they probably thought people wouldn't wouldn't notice but it's like whenever there's like quick action you've got and it's not like a close-up they only do the close-ups when it's William Shatner and often is clasping his hands together and he's hitting somebody like doing it that way but yeah, I couldn't yeah, believe it. This is a classic Star Trek movie as well. It like, really take is. The piss out of it on lower decks of like it... the <laughs> do the two handed up, like hit to the gut, and then the overhead smash on their back was they bent over. Like, oh, I think it's ransom. It's like you just give them the old two double fist, like hit the <laughs> stomach, hit them on the back of the head, they're done. <laughs> but as I was watching it, and I'm like, there's only two characters 
in this fight. I'm like, did somebody else join the fight? And then it cuts back to Shatner. Well, anyway, that was an observation. The episode itself, you know, it was it was good. And it's what Star Trek was. I mean, it was more, you know, big ideas and you got a little bit of action. Uh, but I thought, just for the benefit of this review, we've, because what a choice. I mean, the, the motion picture wasn't the film. It didn't do what I guess they wanted it to do. It wasn't yeah. Star Wars. It was a very different thing. It was long. Not a lot really happens. Again, I'd, I'd need to revisit that. I mean, we get that great shot of the Enterprise and the Jerry Goldsmith theme, which was then repurposed as times. next gen. Oh, yeah, yeah, for many angles, <laughs> which was really <laughs> cool. But that's the main thing I remembered. So for that film, to again, it came and went. I think 1979 was motion picture so they tried with that film which at the time it's like let's get the cast from the tv show that's not been on the air for a while and we'll do a theatrical film it wasn't the hit that they were hoping for so instead they're like well let's do another film star trek 2 i think yeah, I mean, they were trying a TV series like the was that the Adventure Continues or something or Star Trek Two, but on the small screen. But anyway, yeah. so when they finally come up with the Wrath of Khan, which went through different title changes, they're like, "Well, what we'll do, we'll have it be a sequel on the big screen to an episode that came out during season one of that Star Trek series that got cancelled all those years ago." It, yeah, it seems. I think no, the the behind the scenes is even crazier. Um, the as you said, the movie underperformed, but I think they'd already they'd organized a contract for multiple films. With this underperformance, they were concerned. Uh, they knew they needed more action for the second film, but they were also talking about going back to TV, like you said, on with like the, the adventure continues. At the same time, I believe it was. Uh, either Leonard Nimoy or William Shatner were, were playing hard to get more money. And so they're like, more money, dude. Like, you're not... When we've signed the rest of the cast, you can't play hardball with us now. Like, the we've got a script for the pilot episode because, we, you know, they, they didn't... It wasn't just going to be a greenlit. It needed to be pilot, showed to the, the network approved budget approved start progressing that way because he started doing that they came up with a, another idea of just rebooting the whole thing with them in starfleet academy young kirk meet spock meet scotty which is what eventually became many many years later the jj abrams first film 2009 star trek at the same time they started kicking around the idea of the next generation. But that was in the very, very early phases, no script or anything, but they had a script for Star Trek Continues. They had a script based off of sequels to Space Seed, and they had the script for um, another film. And so they sliced those three scripts together of the things they liked to make The Wrath of Khan. And I know this because I just watched a YouTube video on it this morning. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so yeah, it's just one of those like crazy, crazy things. Like they they really needed this movie to work. 
otherwise that would have been it for Star Trek films. Like I guess you can't, you know, their their rationale if this failed would have been, I guess you can't take a TV series onto the big screen. I mean, on a budget of twelve million, box office ninety-seven for this film. Yeah, so it proves itself. <laughs> It did. I mean, after the lackluster critical response to the motion picture, Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry was forced out of the sequel's production. Executive producer Harve Bennett wrote the film's original outline, which Jack B. Sowards developed into a full script. Director Nicholas Meyer completed its final script in 12 days without accepting a writing credit. Meyer's approach evoked the swashbuckling atmosphere of the original series, a theme reinforced by James Horner's musical score. The, the uniforms, like again, like me mainly associating the original cast with these films. I knew of the primary colors, of course I did, and I'd seen odd episodes in the animated series that they did, for, which would have been season four. I guess, like, so yeah, there's three yeah. live-action seasons. So just, like, the red and the black pants, I've always associated, but it is a lot more military, isn't it, than what we had had before. And I guess what Roddenberry wanted the films to be moving forward was just too different, and he got yeah, forced out. That's why it works, I think, is because they had their primary colours, which they done a great job of all the Star Trek from next gen onwards finding a way to make it work even here the different areas have a different undershirt yeah. for what level they are um, but it feels like an actual uh, unit because if you're in the army or the navy you're not walking around the base with everyone in different colors like if you're say you're in the army and everyone's wearing and people someone's wearing desert you're all going to be in desert camo there's not going to be some guy walking around in in white and another guy over there in green it just it's not how it works it's specific to where you are so and it's they're going to be more comfortable also, the actors had aged and had, weren't in quite the same slim shape, and those jackets do a great job of like you like uh, hiding the uh, the extra pounds. Um, but it also adds a layer of authority. They have it because they have experience. You know, they're all older actors. They they have already had a distinguished career. You put them in those uniforms, and they carry more weight. You know. It all works really well. And yeah, Gene Roddenberry was like super against him. Um, but it's some of the most beloved uniforms in Star Trek. People can always say like, oh, I like the the, the original series uniforms and all that sort of stuff. But most people I talk to, like like yourself, this is the, the uniforms for these films, the red with the little white clasp over the shoulder is immediately what they think of Yeah, when they think of Star Trek, especially with the original series cast. And yeah. yeah, it it ends up showing in those in the stats. Like you said, twelve million dollar budget, ninety six million at the box office. That's 
that's a blockbuster. That's in the early days of cinema in at the eighties where the phrase was coined. That's what constituted a blockbuster. Yeah, definitely. You know, with the with the cast because they're all returning before the internet and when I was younger, I honestly thought it was a different actor playing Scotty. Out of all of them, he's the one physically that had changed the most. No longer did he have the jet black hair. He was now graying. He had a mustache and, you know, of course put on a little bit of weight, but he always looked so different. I used to think that it was a different actor. Not the case. Yeah. Yeah, and I had started with the the films like yourself. So when I went back to watch the original series and I saw him as a young man, I'm like, where's his mustache? It just doesn't <laughs> seem right. No. I'm used to the mustache. Uh, but yeah, speaking of the cast, James T. Kirk, William Shatner. Um, it's funny. He always hates, you know, it's, it's a common trope with uh, pop culture that James T. Kirk has a very... Specific way, Blinky. He's never spoken that way. No, he hasn't. No, I, I mean, there's when when you hear that impression, you absolutely know where it's come from. Like you know the yeah. origin of that impression. But yeah, he's turned all the way up to eleven. He doesn't talk like that. But the thing with Shatner, like he's he's a big personality. Probably yeah. <laughs> doesn't surprise anybody to hear that. I mean the. The internal politics of the cast that is a oh. like a, a podcast in itself. Like there's yeah. so much, there's so much going on there. Like whenever I read about Star Trek, it makes me want to rewatch Galaxy Quest. Just mm. like, oh, I want to see this as a drama. <laughs> like I want to see this as a comedy. See it, see it play out. But the stories about directors that have worked, I think Nicholas Meyer, yeah, would be one of them as well. Whereas there's certain scenes with Shatner where he's very determined, he knows what he wants to do for a particular scene, but you've just got to let him tire himself out. And yeah. then he's going to stop overacting and he's yeah. going to give you a quieter moment because he's tired. And then yeah. that's what the scene required. They got the performance out of him. But yeah, you're right. He is the, the joke is to do that impression. but. Watching a show like Boston Legal, Shatner is a good actor. Like there is, yeah. you can get a good performance out of him. Yeah, you can, and uh, all of these films are great. You know, he hits those emotional beats well. The seriousness, the and like I said, he was fighting like, no, 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 I can pull off younger. It's like you, you can't though, and nor should you. <laughs> You're supposed to be a guy with X amount of experience. It, it's more interesting to have someone who, you know, and it's a, it's a it's a core part of his character of he accepted a promotion. Everyone in this film is talking about like you should never have accepted that promotion. Like you you you're it's not in your character to be sat behind a desk telling other people to go out and explore space. You were always that's where your heart is, is just is to be out there on the front lines and all that kind of stuff. Um, which is another thing this trilogy does. It takes him from like he's given up the chair and then he's reluctant to take it back because he knows he's supposed to be like mature and 
and uh yeah. let young people do that stuff now but he can't help himself and eventually by the end of all three films he's officially given like it's actually a demotion but for him it's a that's actually what i want <laughs> and for the audience um, it's what we want as well we want captain kirk yeah we don't want admiral kirk admirals don't go on adventures they Chew out captains for disobeying orders and like you know going against protocol and all the rest of it. Um, yeah, and like you said, Shatner and Kirk, they both have the same large personality, which you know he doesn't think twice. It's like he gets told, I need you to return Spock's Catra to Vulcan. He's like, You need a ship, he's like, I'll take care of it. Like, yeah, and his immediate thought is, I'll just steal one. <laughs> no <laughs> yeah. worries. Yeah. Not here. Not even, a, not even a plan B. Just, no, nah, <laughs> I can get one. It's all right. Um, I can, you know, use my, uh, my friends and my rank to finagle my way onto a ship and just head off with it. Um, and then, of course, Spock, Leonard Nimoy, most people's, like a significant amount of people's favorite Star Trek character. And for good reason. He's like the prototypical um, POV character examining humanity and how they've evolved or what their potential could be um, as an outsider. Um, and yeah, he's phenomenal. And a very interesting career as well in, in away from Star Trek. But yeah, um, he is like the the character. He's the smart one. He's kind of the I'll get you out of trouble. I'll figure out the solve. Like that kind that utilitarian character, but somehow works on such a high level. And then rounding out what's known as the trilogy for the original series, you've got DeForest Carey playing Doctor McCoy, who he's the cynical world weary comedy <laughs> who who pokes and jabs at spock yeah to try to get a rise out of him yeah those three are perfect together but leonard nimoy famously didn't want to come back and do more star trek didn't want to come back and do star trek 2 promises were made i mean he directs star trek 3 he directs star trek 4 think because of that that's why shatner was allowed <laughs> to direct star trek 5 the voyage nope star trek 5 the final frontier yeah he directed that one and then when it came to number six they're like come on let's get nicholas meyer back from star trek 2 <laughs> yeah but leonard nimoy you're right yeah big career star trek outside of star trek i mean he directed a three men and a baby which is yeah. very different to to star trek but with this like he he wanted to leave spock behind i mean spock or playing spock had obviously done a lot for him his career tv and then and then film but this, the character was was to die and we'd get that great death scene that great moment between spock and kirk 
but we do end the movie knowing that Spock's out there somehow. Yeah, and that was come up with on the day because it was part of his contract for Star Trek 2. I'll only come back if you kill me. I'm done. And then as the filming, I guess he had a sense that the movie was good. He was enjoying it. They reached a good equilibrium. He's like, mm. and the and I think Nicholas Meyer was like, "Are you sure you want us to kill you off? Like we can come up with something. We can do rewrites." He goes, "I'll just do something vague that could be anything." And that's where he came up with on the on the morning of the shoot of like touching spoons and saying, "Remember," and before he goes and does his heroic sacrifice. And then when it's coming up to come up with a script for Star Trek three, that that's how, yeah, that's what his leverage was to come back. Like I'll come back and be Spock again, but I want to direct it. <laughs> and, and he's not in it a lot. He's not in it a lot, to not. be honest. Yeah. And William Shatner has like never let him live that down of like, you knew from the get go, you knew from the get go <laughs> that they're going to kill you and bring you back. And yeah, for like, 30 or 40 years, they were arguing back and forth like an old married couple of like, I didn't know. It's just, you know, they wanted some ambiguity there. I was like, that's what I came up with. It wasn't, yeah, very funny. Uh, then you have the rest of the crew, Scotty, as we've already mentioned, James Doohan, who on the original series actually had a lot of stuff to do. He had to do all the voice work that wasn't like, some, someone comes in and they need to do a, the computer in the original series. That was James Dillon. They needed like to, some animal or creature. He'd step in and do all that sort of stuff. A very talented man. And it was him who came up with the idea of making him Scottish. And they're developing the show. Like, oh, you need to be the lead engineer. And he goes, oh, well, then he has to be Scottish because they're the best shipbuilders. Ah, right. I didn't know that's where, where that came from. You know, Kelly felt that McCoy's speaking his catchphrase, he's dead, Jim, during Spock's death scene would ruin the moment's seriousness. So Doohan instead says the line, he's dead already to Kirk. There's so many examples of that, of the the cast just knowing their characters. Yeah. It, it yeah. Honestly, doing prep for this, it comes up more than anything else that I've done prep, uh, prep for. Whereas something's in the script or a director is asking for a particular thing and the cast are like, no, it, that doesn't sound right. The character wouldn't do that. They're so invested in the characters. Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, Nichelle Nichols, uh, who plays Ahura, um, had a very good long like friendship with James Doohan. And there's a scene, it's actually not in any of these movies. It's in, uh, I think it's in The Undiscovered Country where he's injured and she's screaming like, don't you leave me, you son of a bitch, or something like that. That was actually taken from real life. James Doohan had a heart attack and Michelle Nichols raced to the hospital oh. and that was basically how it played out. And they put that in the next movie they filmed. Holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, so like, like at least... Uh, not just you know knowing their characters, but you know lifelong friends. Um, even with the animosity between uh, George Takei, who plays oh, Steve, I mean, William Shatner. 
Yeah, like in at the end of the voyage home, I know we've not quite got there yet. When they're looking to see which ship they're going to be stationed on, and then they see that it's a refurbished Enterprise, and and timely as well because that's where we see that it's an Enterprise A, just in time for the premiere of Star Trek: The Next Generation with the Enterprise D. Yeah, smart thinking, Paramount. Like use Voyage yeah. Home to introduce this new thing, but anyway. So when you first see the Enterprise A, and then Sulu's like, "I was hoping for Excelsior," which yeah. is setting up what eventually happens in the Undiscovered Country. Yeah, where he's a Captain Sulu on an Excelsior class ship. Yeah, that's that's right. But yeah, oh yeah, off camera, Kirk and Sulu. Wow. Yeah. That's shenanigans. It's it's still going today, isn't it? They've they've not shown any signs of slowing down. No, not at all. And then rounding out the original cast, of course, you've got Walter Koenig as Chekhov. Who Khan remembers, although he wasn't (laughs) wasn't actually in in the episode. (laughs) He hadn't been cast yet, yeah. Yeah. No, but Khan knows all about him. <laughs> knows all about him. Yeah. And then you've got the awful thing. What are those creatures like the that the worms that they put in their ears? Like the eels. Yeah. Um I can't they do have a name. I they don't say I don't believe they say it in the film. It's something that's been added in law afterwards. I've got it here. Yeah. I'm not sure on the pronunciation, but it's C E T I. The baby Saiti, C T. Seti, because Seti Alpha. The baby Seti. Because I was oh, how did they pull that off? Because it, it looks horrendous. It is a ginormous paper mache ear about the <laughs> size of an old school television. Uh and they have a string on the actors' faces. They have a sh- like a, a a fishing wire to pull the little thing across their cheek towards their ear, and then they cut to the the ear itself. And yeah, yep. it's, it's the opposite. So and they have a string and they pull right. it up into the ear. So paper mache head and a close up. Yeah. So when it's on the actor's face, it was stretchy rubber, and then they yep. were just slowly just pulling them across. And yeah, that's that's how they did it. Cause it looks. Even now, like it looks horrendous, like how, yeah, like an awful thing to have it crawling in uh, in your ear. But yeah, so the it was rubber covered with strawberry or raspberry jelly to give them a slimy appearance. So that's yeah, that's. I mean, the special effects. I mean, things like that was going on because again, like you know, the budgets come in as low as it did. The production team used various cost-cutting techniques to keep within budget, including utilizing miniature models from past projects, reusing sets, effects footage, and costumes from the first film. The film was the first feature film to contain a sequence created entirely with graphic or computer graphics. That's that uh, was the Genesis cool. thing, and that's the joke. Uh, they use it in. Cinema use it in a couple of things because uh, that was ILM. They had been working on that. That was for, I think it was for like the original John Knoll, like CGI. Um, and they're like, oh, have you got anything ready? We're doing the Star Trek. Like, it'd be great. 
And yes, people make the joke of like, look at those incredible graphics. It's like, but at the time they were. Everything else was done with either miniatures or something, or matte paintings or something painted directly, drawn directly onto the film stock. This was created itself from scratch into film that they could import. Like it was actually huge. It's just, you know, it's 35, 36 years old now or something. And it, it's it's one of the things that dates the most because it wasn't something physical. Yeah. Um, it's like when you look at CGI of movies from eight years ago, you're like, wow, it's a bit rough. I'd... Worse in the from the late nineties. So yeah, but miniatures like, hold that... up. Miniatures hold up. Yeah. Honestly, even going back and watch that original series episode, like just seeing the Enterprise, you absolutely know that it's a miniature, but it looks great. It looks, yep. looks great. I can't believe we've gone as long as we have and we've not actually took time out to talk about Ricardo yeah. Montalban. Khan himself, a genetically yeah. enhanced superhuman who had used his strength and intellect to briefly, this is the claim, briefly rule much of Earth in the 1990s. That was his whole thing. Contrary to speculation, he did not use a prosthetic chest. That was I him. knew this was going to come up. Yeah, <laughs> that is all Ricardo, 100%, baby. No artificial devices were added. That's his own muscular physique that is on show. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and at the time, he was famous because Treasure, uh, Fantasy Island was on TV. So it was he was a good get. Because he was on an enormously successful show, uh, and they had to get him for what a limited amount of time to use for this film. Um, but yeah, and you get to see that glorious chest of his. He used to be a, uh, a bodybuilder, uh, which right. is where that that physique comes in. Um, and the name is one of the things that worked him well for Space Seed back then. Oh, of course, a big yeah. guy. Anyway, he is, but you don't <laughs> you see a lot more of him. In the Wrath of Khan, but yeah. Space Seed he is wearing a red shirt, like he is yeah. wearing a Starfleet uniform for a time. Then, when you see him on his ship, the Botany Bay, him and his crew are wearing part of the uniform, which I thought was a nice yeah. callback to the TV series. Yeah, um, and he's amazing. The the dialogue they give him, very Shakespearean. Um, quoting uh, Moby Dick because, of course, Kirk is his white whale. Um, I've got some of these lines written down because they're so good. I'll chase him around the moons of Nibia and around the Antares Maelstrom and round Perdition's flames before I give him up. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, right. and yeah, it's all of it so great. Uh, you know, there's famous when he's he's failed to hit get. Kirk and he's down on the underground the planet and he's like almost like a relief but also a satisfaction of like I'll leave you as you left me barely alive barely alive and then you get of course God oh I mean come on iconic (laughs) this is widely regarded to be the best Star Trek film Uh, and I think the the argument could be made on the merits of the film itself and its production story and everything else. 
probably accurate. I personally, my favorite's first contact, but that's because I'm a next gen guy. Yeah, I I would agree with that as well. That's probably the same same for me. You know, Turk and Khan never confront each other face to face during this film. Yeah, I think that it works better because of it. Like they can't if you know because hand to hand Khan should have him hands down. He's got the strength, speed, and um, ferocity. Yeah, as we see in Into Darkness with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, I don't want to talk it about it. It shouldn't even be a contest. <laughs> um, was, oh, th- that it, whole that whole thing with that movie. No, 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 he's not Khan. He's somebody else. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so it's intellect versus intellect. Um, Stealth and Guile, uh, Mr. Rex. Uh, and, you know, Khan, his plan... Uh, goes off without a hitch initially as his crew continually keeps telling him if one let we've got a ship well, let's just go yeah like we can go it wasn't enough the he yeah. wanted kirk yeah because he uh you know incorrectly blamed him for the death of his wife and like he knew the planet was going to blow up next to him yeah. and completely ruin the uh the ecosystem yeah, but all their all their interactions were over a view screen or through communicators. And what I didn't know, their scenes were filmed four months apart, so they were oh. not interacting with each other at all. Like it was just four months apart. But you watch the film, you feel it. You feel yeah. the tension between the two. So yeah, yeah. there's. Yeah, there's so much, there's so much drama, and you know they did add a lot more action into this film, but it's the drama, isn't it? The characters, the relationship between Kirk, Spock, Bones, and just having such a good villain in Khan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's it holds true today. Your hero is only as good as their villain, um, and yeah, they had an all-time great villain with. Khan. Too good apparently to not use him again when they were doing the new movies. <laughs> yeah, the JJ films, I like the first one. Beyond is a lot of fun, but Into Darkness, that's the one that I do I do struggle with, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, grounding out the crew, uh of the sorry, the cast, Carol, uh Carol Marcus, played by Bibby Besh. Uh, who is, you know, in the Abrams films, we keep bringing those up, uh, is reprised in Into Darkness. Uh, Her son, and we find out later, Kirk's son, David, played by Merritt Buttrick, who, you know, they cast someone with the same kind of curly hair as Shatner, which I appreciate, even though he, like, you know, throughout most of this movie, he actually hates Kirk. Like, that military jackbooted thug and typical Starfleet and all this sort of stuff because yep. all this like anger towards him. Um you've got and then and you've got Savic played by the young whippersnapper introducing her debut film, Kirsty Alley. Yeah, yeah. And she she's good in this. She she is good and self-confessed Star Trek fan. She took the Vulcan ears 
home with her. Like she really liked Spock and was a fan of Star Trek. And yeah, I mean, reasons why she didn't come back. I mean, her character comes back, but not her contract disputes. It, I think it got a bit messy. And in the end, they weren't able to bring her back. But yeah, it was one of those weird ones where when I watched it, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't realize that's who it was. I mean, I'd later seen Kirstie Alley in different things. That look who's talking was I knew you probably because that, that's where I was thinking. <laughs> when I first like noticed her in like a, a kid's family movie. But yeah, then going back, like, it's weird. Like going back and like, oh, look, it's Kirstie Alley in a different Star Trek film. Hey, look, it's Kim Cattrall. Like really weird, like seeing certain <laughs> actors pop up that you wouldn't expect to see there. But Savik, yeah, no, I, I like her as a character. Yeah, one thing I will say is she's too emotional for a Vulcan. Um, I think the actress from the next movies, um, Robin Curtis, plays a Vulcan better because Kirstie Alley, her voice as well, this that that husky voice of hers does carry naturally a lot of emotion. It does, but did and, you hear the, the way that that was explained? That I think maybe it's in one of the novels that she's half that long. She's supposed to be, yeah, yeah. I think that so that's how they kind of explained it. I think what happened, well, what I read is that Kirstie Alley got quite emotional in her performance, like it was more like the seeing the actor and not the character. But apparently, director Nicholas Meyer liked it, so they so they kept it in. But then, I guess after the fact, like, oh no, what do we do now? People are questioning it. She's half Romulan. Let's just go with it. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. That's how they tried. So that's how they tried to explain her emotional outbursts. Yeah, yeah. Which would make her the first half Romulan to serve in Starfleet. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, the costumes you mentioned already, so the changes that we get, um, so the turtlenecks, that's how you, you can tell the difference between which division they belong to. But, yeah, I really do like these these uniforms. I mean, we get them in Generations in the opening when we get Star Trek B. Yeah. A handful of original cast members come back for that, and then it switches to the next gen uniforms but it was great was it the season one finale of strange new worlds and we yeah, got future pike. pike oh future pike wearing these uniforms or this uniform was excellent and great to see the music we've said james horner or have we said i don't know we talk about james horner so often on this podcast i don't know <laughs> If it's a previous episode or today we've talked about him. Uh, but yeah. I mean, come on, he is great. But interestingly, so this is Star Trek 2, early 80s. Due to budget constraints, the film had to settle for a lesser known composer to save money. Of course, I'm talking about James Horner, who went on <laughs> to have a massive career, but at the yeah. time. Jerry Goldsmith, who did the score for the motion picture, was considered and rejected early. But I think it was 
he was too expensive for them. But I'd say young age of 28, James Horner. He scored this Killing role. It. <laughs> and you'd guess, I'm sure he was relatively cheap to hire at the time, but they went on to have a massive career. But James Horner. I mean, yeah. again, I think he must come up on the podcast more than any other composer. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Hans Zimmer comes up occasionally, but I not think as James much Horner, as yeah. James Horner is, seems to be that guy who scored all of the things, especially when we're going back in time a little bit. Well, we in the go to. Yeah, we've recently reviewed Willow from 1988. James Horner. That was yeah. that was that was him. Yeah, both Avatar movies, anything James Cameron really. Well, um, I think he, he passed, didn't he, before Avatar The Way of Water. So a composer, I'm blanking on his name, who anyway, but yeah, James Horner. Like he's yeah, he was a he was a titan of the industry, like works on so many, so many projects. Star Trek three, the search for Spock. Shall we shall we keep going? And instead of like rating each individual movie, maybe we'll get to the end and then as where this is a trilogy episode, do that's the best way to go. We actually review the whole Yeah, I whole think trilogy. so because they all roll they do roll into one into the other, especially if you've watched them over the, the course of a day and a half like I just did. Um yeah, and as you said with Wrath of Khan, it really does end with the uh, I mean they might as well wink to the camera. Like there's Spock's like tube sitting on the planet and it ends there. I'm like yeah, with a voiceover from William Shatner of like, mate, you know, like this new planet this planet of new life and blah 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 blah. I'm like, you know, maybe it it'll do something else. And then it does the what well, almost becomes the next gen intro of like Spock, Lana Nimoy doing the space to final frontier. These are the continuing voyages. Like, like it's starting a TV show off of this movie, <laughs> but it's yeah. not. It's starting a trilogy. Yeah, I mean, they uh, definitely, they definitely changed their minds or what they were going to do. Like, not only because I think initially it was going to be the end of Spock. The actor, yeah. director, that's what they wanted it to be. But Paramount, I think, got a bit nervous. Us, the fans, it's good that they did. And they found a way to bring bring Spock back. But going, you know, in between 2 and Star Trek 3, they didn't hide that Spock was coming back. They wanted people to know that because I guess they were worried that people wouldn't turn up for Star Trek without Spock. I mean, it's it's in the name, The Search for yeah. Spock. But interestingly, in the opening credits, there is a pause where Leonard Nimoy's name would be, but isn't. So yeah. well, that, was, that was an interesting thing that they did back there. So Paramount Pictures commissioned the film after the positive critical and commercial reaction to The Wrath of Khan. Leonard Nimoy, as we've mentioned, directed the film, becoming the first Star Trek cast member to do so. Producer Harv Bennett wrote the script starting from the end and working back and intended the destruction of the Enterprise to be a shocking development. Back then, it was. Since then, 
Seems to happen a lot, like Picard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blowing up your Enterprise. Yeah, we're we're in a movie. The Enterprise is going to end up either heavily damaged or destroyed. That's just how it happens. It just, yeah. But back then, it was a new thing. Bennett and Nimoy collaborated with FX House Industrial Light and Magic to develop storyboards and new ship designs. ILM also handled the film's many effects sequences. And of course, they also did Star Wars. So it adds that space opera feel to it. Composer James Horner returned to expand his themes from the previous film. The Search for Spock was released in 1984. The film grossed a total of 87 million worldwide. Critical reaction to The Search for Spock was generally positive, but notably less so than the previous film. Reviewers generally praised the cast, Nemo's direction and characters, while criticism tended to focus on the plot. The special effects were conflictingly received so there we go so this had a budget of 16 million box office 87 million yeah so not bad cost a little bit more made a little bit less um typical of a sequel for something successful i think only star wars uh, at the time had a sequel that actually pulled in more than the original film i mean ignoring of course the fact that Wrath of Khan made more than the motion picture because they spent big on the motion picture. And as I already mentioned, it, that's why there's so many of those glory shots of the Enterprise because they were just like, look at how good it looks. We spent <laughs> a lot on this model. Check it out. Um, and by doing so, created the uh, <laughs> the trope of whenever there was a, a Star Trek movie, the first time you see the Enterprise, it's the typical like flyby and watching all the angles and all that. It's it, it's it's a trope. They do it, it every is, single time now. But one that I love. Like, I really yeah, love same. it. And they, and they do it at the, the opening of DS9. Yeah. And that yeah, recent season of Lower Decks, when they arrived, yeah. they arrived to DS9 early, what should we do? Just fly around the pylons a few more times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make out like you're just awed by their pylons. And then... <laughs> Looks over at the captain. Keep circling. Oh, uh, so good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it. We know what it is, and we can't help but fall for it every single time. Um, for this, of course, the entire regular cast comes back. Uh, with Savic replaced by Robin Curtis, who, as I said, does a lot more convincing Vulcan. Um, I think she does a really great job. She. Doesn't get, I don't feel like she gets as much to do, you know, because she's kind of at the start of the movie, they scan and get a life form, like a complex life form, like an animal life form, not a plant life on the Genesis planet. So her and David go down to search, figure it out. And then they find the slugs, which is like the bacteria off the pod. But then they see tracks and they follow it. And so she kind of gets just sidelined while the rest of the stuff's happening with the Klingons in orbit and uh, Bones seemingly losing his mind from grief because he's got Spock's Catra or soul rattling around in his head, um, which they did a really good thing, which, you know, when they on their way back to Earth, someone's broken in Spock's quarters and they go in there and he's like, 
why'd you remember Jim? Why'd you leave me? And it sounds like Leonard Nimoy. And then they, yeah. it's all in shadow and they pull him up into the light and there's bones. Yeah. Cause he's getting, and he, you know, he gets stopped by that security guy cause he's trying to hire a ship and he tries the Vulcan nerve pinch, but can't. <laughs> but it does, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I they, mean, DeForest Kelly, well. he was often responsible for some of the more funnier lines, like memorable lines where yeah. he's, when he's carrying Spock's Catra, although there's funny moments like that, we're getting some more dramatic acting from him. So it was a different side to Bones, which which I did like. You mentioned Klingons in orbit. Christopher Lloyd. I think I went forever without knowing, like when I was a kid, the realisation it was Doc Brown from Back to the Future. Absolutely yeah. blew my mind. I know before then it was in Taxi, One for the Cuckoo's Nest, and I think that's what Nemoy had seen. But he's he's great. Like he's 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 really villain. good, isn't he? So you you ah oh, you go from Khan and then a different kind of villain here, but he plays it really well. Very like big Shakespearean. Uh, yeah, no, he really, he really is great, and he's got that weird, like alien dog type pet. <laughs> there's like stuff hard. going on, right? <laughs> there's, uh, there's, uh, there's stuff going on, um, but there's other actors like who are appearing for the second or third time. Like we've got Mark Leonard who plays Sarek, Spock's yeah, dad, who originally played Sarek in the original series, but he also played before he played Spock's dad played a Romulan commander in Balance of Terror. Ah. In the first, in, yeah, which was, yeah, so he, I mean, many Star Trek actors have done this and played multiple characters, but like literally up until um, Jonathan uh, Discovery, and I can't remember the name who played, the actor who plays uh, Sarek there, but it was always... Mark Leonard. Oh, yeah. Um, From the thinking, I know who you mean. Yep. I can see yeah, he exactly. must can't remember his Jonathan name. Fram- uh, Fram- no. James Fran. Fran James, or Frayne, James Frayne. Ah, yeah. we're close. I feel like we're close. <laughs> yeah, we're close um, enough. We're close yeah, enough. He's yeah. not in this film. So we're close. Yeah. We're close enough. But Mark Leonard, he first played uh, Sarak in the original series episode, Journey to Babel. But then he played the character for a second time in Star Trek, the animated series in the episode Yesteryear, which was showing Spock when he was younger. Eyes dog thing. That's right. So this movie was the third time, but then he came back for Next Generation. And as you say, he's made other appearances as well. But the original cast... Now directed by a longtime co-star and friend. So this was like everybody has something to say. Yeah. I mean, all intents and purposes, Leonard Nimoy is a good director. He did a good job and good enough that Paramount brought him back for Star Trek Four. But what Shatner had to say, initially it was awkward, although as the shoot went on, it became easier for him when he realized how confident Nemo was. So again, like most cast members have got something to say along those lines of admitting 
occasionally to find it difficult in acting, being directed by a longtime co-star. That was DeForest Kelly. Um, but essentially, you know, on one hand, saying it was difficult, it was awkward, but just because the relationship had changed. But everybody has nice things to say about him as, as a director. So putting that to one side, Shatner, to reduce his weight, because it had now been a few years more since that original TV series, and then the Wrath of Khan, to, to reduce weight um, before the start of production. So I think it's something that he struggled with a little bit. Uh, the costume department had to make 12 shirts of, I think, varying sizes, just because... <laughs> I don't know how long the shoot went on for, um, but you know he was an older guy at the time, so he was finding his size a bit more difficult than he'd done in his younger years when he used to wear that yellow top or gold. Yeah, it's gold is it? It's not yellow, gold. It's supposed to be gold, yeah, yeah. But but again, like for me, when I watch these films, the cast look at the cast. Yeah, that's that's just what they look like. I mean, more than anything, what I notice, it's not anybody's weight. It's how pointy Shatner's sideburns are. <laughs> like they yeah. are so they are so long and sharp. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's definitely a choice. <laughs> Actually, I used to work with someone who had a uh, pointy uh, sideburns the same way, and I uh, and uh, we're out unprompted uh, one day. They're like, "Yeah, like you know, I have the same problem with these because I used to watch Star Trek, and that's how Shatner had his." So I'm like. <laughs> that's what i'm seeing yeah so yeah like you know i it seems normal to me but yeah they are very pointy um but i've just become accustomed to them i guess um one of the klingon crew john larroquette from the larroquette show oh right I, stripes. I, I mean that was a long pause that you're looking at me i think <laughs> oh, am i supposed to know who that is yeah right. yeah uh like i know yeah he's Speaking of, uh, it was he played that like gay serial killer or just uh psychopath on the practice in the early 2000s. He's recurring in that, but yeah, he, he had the John Larroquette show in the uh in the late 90s, and yeah, I know him from a bunch of stuff like growing up. He always seemed to be that actor who popped up in things, and then when I'm getting prepped for this, I'm like, wait, John Larroquette's one of the Klingons. Man, it was hard to spot him through the makeup, and he's <laughs> yeah, he's he's so unanimated compared to how he usually is that it really I think thankfully I had some reference of like there he is, that's him. You know what you um, just said there? You can absolutely spot Christopher Lloyd. Like there yeah, is yeah. no amount of makeup, like the voice and just the eyes. Like <laughs> the eyes, there. yeah. It's all there in the performance. What's the rule of Star Trek films of like good and bad? It's every even number is good. That's right, every even number. So, so very fitting then. This is clearly not as good as the last one. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, not which... as good as the next one. Yeah, because the whole thing um, is you. <laughs> The whole premise, they've never done it, they'd never done it before of killing off a character and then finding a way to bring them back. And it's to do with the Genesis planet and the Genesis matrix. And they use proto matter at the 
the planet ends up blowing up because it's unstable, but it's linked directly to Spock's aging. Why he de-ages in the first place is not covered. Um, need a reason to give Leonard Nimoy off camera so he can well, focus I just on took directing, it, I guess. I just took it as he legitimately died and then was just reborn, and that's why yeah. he's young and he's, he's aging. So I think I think it's less that he de-aged, that he just died and was reborn. That's how I always... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and they need to put his marbles back in, transferring it from McCoy back to his body. Um, but yeah, it's become a trope, like you know, lower decks and the the great koala. <laughs> uh -huh. But yeah, it's a uh, it's one of those things. Everyone does a great performance. Christopher Lloyd is like magnetic as like the villain, like again a very different villain. He's not as psychological or, or um, he's not as Shakespearean and like pure revenge and hatred he's he's paranoid he's like they don't call it they call it genesis but it's clearly a weapon and we'll have this weapon because it's going to destroy like you know lenders they can just create a planet to have a base on like out of thin air like you know he's legitimately like paranoid and his that's his motivations and he kills kirk's son just to make a point and even his like his how blase he's like you make a point kill one of the, the prisoners I don't care which one he's, yeah so it was supposed to be Savic but yeah but that was the thing yeah so he, does it, it wasn't does heroic it wasn't intentional yeah from this movie onwards Kirk Law he hates the Klingons yeah but what happened in this film those Klingon bastards for what they did to my son oh Kirk Swore. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and it's and it's there, isn't it? But yeah, it wasn't supposed to be him, but he died heroically. It was a very Kirk thing to do. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's it works out. One little uh, tidbit that I couldn't help but notice as well. Right when they're getting back at the start of the movie, back to Earth, a trainee's like, "Are we going to get like a parade for like getting back?" Bill Lamar. Oh, is is that who that is? Yeah, yeah. Oh, Martian that's Man cool. for himself. Of course. Lamar, like, or, you know, John Stewart, Green Lantern, if you're a Justice League animated fan, as we are. But, yeah. And I know his face so well as, like, that the second I saw him, I'm like, it's clear as day. It's Phil Lamar. Like, yeah, he was a nobody at the time, so they didn't think anything of it. But with me, me having grown up with him, I'm like, how would they, someone not notice who that is? like Kirstie Alley for Wrath of Khan. It's like, that's Kirstie Alley. What's she <laughs> oh, doing in this? Phil Lamar's great. Oh, yeah. yeah. I watched this again recently, obviously, for this, yeah. and missed it. Sorry, Phil. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely missed it. Yeah. Uh, they do a great bait and switch. They know they can't take on the Klingons because the only reason they could pilot the Enterprise is they had jury-rigged all computer controls go through the bridge. And then when they get shot, it fries all that stuff. So they beam down to the planet, the Klingons being onto the thing, but they've set the self-destruct, wipes them out. And uh, we lose the Enterprise. But then they managed to trick themselves back up. The Klingon bird of prey. Uh, and they use that to get them back to uh, Vulcan. Uh, Mysticism, they put uh, Spock back in his head. 
and then <laughs> movie ends. It's a good way of putting and it. We move on to Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home, where we they named Chris in the ship the HMS Bounty after the famous ship from history of mutineers. Fitting because they mutinied and stole their own ship in, in order to do all of this. But yeah, it's uh, painted in horrific red paint down the side. Uh, which you only ever seen that one shot. Even all the uh, model shots after that, it's not there. I looked. Ah, okay. I I'm going to admit something here. So growing up and watching Star Trek, and enjoying Star Trek, this film for the longest time was my favorite Star Trek film. I agree with you now. It is First Contact, and the Wrath of Khan is excellent. But as a kid, this this film because it was it was sci-fi but different to any other star trek because it was present day or it's like mid yeah. to late 80s san francisco yeah which it, it was a great entry point i think for a lot of people but it was just this film it just it clicked with me it's like for the longest time my favorite james bond film was the spy who loved me with Roger Moore. So therefore, because of that film, I liked Roger Moore as Bond. Spy Love Me, I liked because it had a car that could go underwater and it was fun. So there was just something very relatable about the voyage home and the comedy. I mean, yeah. It's the almost two, yeah, a straight up comedy. comedy act. Yeah. It's it's really, really good. <laughs> like it's a good yeah. one. But yeah. that was always my experience with it. I feel like it was on all the time as well. It was like the one that I saw the most because it was on the most as well. Like I feel like every like what what every third or fourth Sunday it was on as a matinee. Like But it's like if you if you try and pitch it, if someone asks you what's it about? Starship, crew from the future, arrive in the past, need to find a whale. Takes to the future. And then what happens? Oh, it communicates with this big thing. And then what happens? Well, that's it. That's, that's the movie. It doesn't sound very <laughs> On good. On paper, yeah. It does not sound very good. But you've got the punk on the bus. We see him again in season two Picard. of Picard, which was amazing. The Vulcan nerve pinch or whatever. Everyone cheers for Spock. It just... Yeah. Oh, man, it, it, oh, I, I'm showing my hand earlier, I know I am, but I really do love this film. I really do. Yeah. Just, also, <laughs> the profanity that everyone just picks up, like, double dumbass on you. Oh, then, yeah, yeah, yeah. But just then, even, because... they all look humanoid. Spock looks human for the most part, but he's got the pointy ears, and it's pointed out to him, but what about when we go out there? He doesn't say anything. He tears a bit off his robe and just makes a bandana. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> It's just, ah, yeah. oh, it's, yeah, there's a lot of fun to be had with this movie. So after directing The Search for Spock, Nemoy was asked to direct the next feature and given greater freedom regarding the film's content. Nimoy and producer Harv Bennett conceived a story with a environmental message and a no-clear-cut villain. That's a big departure from the last two films because, there is no real villain other than humans, I guess, in in the modern day and what's happening, whaling and all of that. So 
I mean, when do we get? Oh man, a couple of years after this, Superman falls, the quest for peace, Superman ridding the world of nuclear weapons. It was definitely a theme that was happening in the in the late eighties. Dissatisfied yeah. with the first screenplay produced by Steve Mearson and Peter Crikes, Paramount hired the Ratha Khan writer and director Nicholas Meyer. Meyer and Bennett divided the story between them and wrote different parts of the script, requiring approval from Nimoy, lead actor William Shatner, and executives at Paramount. So things are changing. Now a co-star, Leonard Nimoy, is back for a second time directing, but William Shatner is also getting a say as well. So it's it's definitely, yeah, it's really interesting that. The Voyage Home was released in 1986. The film's humour, acting, direction, special effects and unconventional story were well received by critics, fans of the series and the general audience. It was financially successful. This film grossed worldwide $133 million. Wow. It also earned several awards and four Oscar nominations for cinematography and sound. So going back to Ratha Khan, that was that earned less than a hundred million. Here we are on a budget of twenty six million, a hundred and thirty three million. And I think it's going back to what I said before, like people, like a wider audience may have found this film more relatable. Like people aren't necessarily coming back from the search for Spock; they're watching this because they've seen a funny trailer. Yeah. Yeah, and the uh, the fish out of water story, um, which ended up being all of Star Trek: Picard season two, even to down to the punk being yeah. back in it on the bus, and then you know someone says, "Can you turn it down?" And instead of like screw you, he's like, "Oh crap!" and actually turns it down after <laughs> having learned awesome. his lesson from Spark. Uh, but it it just works. Yeah, it also opens with the dedication of the crew of the Challenger, which had um, blown up the year before, uh, with teachers on board that was that tragedy in 1987 um because of course the first the first shuttle was named enterprise after star trek um and nichelle nichols especially had like a very close relationship with nasa and the, the entire program um but yeah it's environmental message i mean star trek it's the whole premise has been we're going to explain talk about the problems we have in our society today through a filter set in space in the future like that's how we can uh show kind of the ridiculousness of our situation and like come on people we got to get over this you know we should be better than this um doing it it's a film is harder because you do have to have a beginning middle and end um also you have to fill out more runtime you've got budgets that you need i mean it needs to own it back i don't think there's an action set piece in this whole movie i like yeah i, I mean do they even i don't even know if they fire a phaser he shoots the lock in the hospital. I mean, does that count? I mean, I mean at, but not, at a, not at a person. As an enemy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Honestly, uh, it really it really is a different kind of 
Star Trek film and one that I do still enjoy going back to and watching. We've got the character, a new character, Catherine Hicks, played by Dr. Gillian Taylor. Just to show you where Paramount's head was at when making this movie, initially they were looking at Eddie Murphy. They were looking, and keep in mind, this is 80s Paramount Beverly Hills Cop. Uh, more like examples of Eddie Murphy films that he did for for the studio, but they did have to change it up because no longer would it have fit. They made the character female, but yeah, I, I did. I read something about Eddie Murphy initially being attached. That's so. It's like they were just attaching him to everything. Like this guy's a huge star. Like put him in Star Trek, which. <laughs> I mean, originally, so it was so originally the role was written for Eddie Murphy, but he was going to be a astrophysicist at Berkeley, and then okay. they, so then obviously they they changed it up. Uh, it was Nimoy that chose Hicks after inviting her to lunch with Shatner and witnessing that they they had chemistry. So that's where. That's what it came from. But initially, they were looking at Eddie Murphy. And do you know what? It's just a few years after Superman 3 with Richard Pryor, where yeah. that's pretty much what they did there. Yeah. Um, It'd have been too distracting. Hey, remember that would've. Star Trek film, Eddie Murphy? That would That's what the voyage home would have been. Yeah. And also, the whole thing is they need to save whales. What's an astrophysicist going to do? Like they, well, they, they obviously like, changed it up after that initial yeah. idea. I mean, getting Shatner back, apparently he wasn't willing to begin with. He had conditions that included a salary of $2 million. That was one of and his not conditions. And having Eddie Murphy come in and usurp <laughs> his uh, star power, I suspect. Another condition, the promise of directing the next film. And it's like, <laughs> oh, that's so... It just rings so true, doesn't it? You can just imagine, like, hey, Nemo's just done two. I want to do the next one. Yeah. Also, the script he got given for The Final Frontier was something that Roddenberry himself had pushed time and time again of, like, let's have the meet God. Oh, like, oh, yeah. But doesn't fit with anything to do with the franchise you set up. No, it doesn't, does it? Yeah. Even yeah, like take... in, in Next Gen when we got Q, it was a character I really like, but he feels like a character that seems to doesn't fit with everything else that we get from Star Trek. But Q's not God. So the idea in the fifth Star Trek film, oh, they're gonna meet God. They're gonna go to the edge of space and meet God. Oh, and Spock's yeah. brother's involved. Spock's who? Oh, yeah, his brother. And then when we get yeah, to Star yeah. Trek oh, Discovery... By the way, he also, yeah, he has a sister. sister as well. Wait, what? Oh, anyway. Like, I'm a, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, family so, got busy for Vulcans. <laughs> but that was the promise for Shatner. Yeah, of course. We'll we'll do another one and you can and you can direct it. Yeah. Yeah, no worries. Um but you know it. It works. I mean, there's no one else to really name. Uh, Sarek, Mark Leonard's back in this for because he's gone to Earth to make the case for his for the the crew and Spock because 
The reason they break all those rules was to save his son. Um, he's only in at the very beginning and the very end, so it's not a big role, but it's it's a paycheck. Yeah. But with yeah. Um, with Robin Curtis reprising the role of Savick, it's not in the film. So her role is minimal, even more so than the search for Spock. But did you hear or have you read what was originally intended for her character and Spock? Yeah, yeah. That, I was, I was going to bring this up when we are talking about the search for Spock. When he's going through Fong, uh, Pong Ba on the planet and she has to help him and they do that finger-touchy thing, I always thought this as a kid as well. Uh, but this whole thing was confirmed that uh, because it can be fatal, her soul for it was they had sex. <laughs> and then she yeah. carried the child of Spock. Is that the, uh, the storyline yeah. you're going to mention? Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> In the final cut of the film, all references to her being pregnant were dropped. But that is apparently what was going to going to happen to moving forward. Spock would have been a dad, but they they left it. So I think this film, that film, maybe Robin Curtis would have had more to do, but they just chose not to go in that in that direction. Yeah, um, which it could have opened up interesting possibilities but am i remembering correctly that kim cattrall came back as savik for the undiscovered country i thought she was a different character was she i think yeah yeah no she is yeah no she's not yeah she's not savik because i I think she's actually human isn't she no she's a vulcan ah because there's a behind the scenes story to that as well for some reason, the original series crew, like actors, could just not, not, uh, not have controversy. Um, what? And this is around Kim Cattrall. Well, uh, yeah, like uh, Robin Curtis not wanting to come back because ah, of, right because of behind the scenes dramas. And let's see if I'm remembering correctly, where the heck is Kim Cattrall? No, she is a new character, Lieutenant Valeris. All right. So I'm I'm remembering wrong, but I would not have been surprised if it was a complete uh, the same character recast yet again. Right. Um, yes. Yeah, so it just yes. It was I, just two. I think, I think it was yeah. I think it was supposed to be her. Right. Okay. Behind the scenes, she just they uh there was some like back and forth, and they weren't going to pay her as much. And after having her side story cut out, she's uninterested. So. It got rid of her and introduced a new female Vulcan, but it was supposed to be Savic. You know, going back to Catherine Hicks, the film ends. She's in the future now, and that's just her life. <laughs> She's yeah. going to be spending time aboard a science ship. So, oh, okay. Is is that okay? Should somebody be checking that that's okay? She's from the past, and now she's just going to live yeah. in the future. I guess also, it's fine. whale expert. They've just got two whales, three if you include the calf. So she's going to get on a ship and leave Earth. Leaving the whales. Yep. 
leaving the whales. Doesn't she need to like teach her knowledge to the people in the future? You know, I read right. Paramount's like, we should probably subtitle what the whales and the probe are saying to each other. And, and you know, the writers on the movie are like, absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> that would just be silly. It's better. Yeah, we don't we even don't know. know what's been yeah, said. We, Hi, yeah, how know. are you? <laughs> yeah. Oh, where you been, mate? Some crazy stuff happened. Some these guys kidnapped us, but it's all good. Like, we're happy. Like, you can fuck off now. Like, what we'll, we'll yeah, job no, on? It, yeah. Like, it's, <laughs> it's better being vague. Like, you know yeah. what is happening. The probe stays until the whales communicate and then the probe leaves. Okay, so the whales communicated what they need to communicate. That's fine. The probe goes off. You know, the sound of the probe that was... Le- yeah. Wheel. Leonard Nimoy. That was him. <laughs> Obviously, his voice was manipulated and synth and whatever else they did to it, but he was actually doing it because what was happening is they kept bringing to him... How does this sound? Is this what you're looking for? And he's like, no, 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 no. And he's like, like this. And whatever he did, he did for them. And that's what ended up being in the movie. <laughs> I love go. it. Yeah. Also, the whales, puppets. Yeah. Which, well, as a kid, yeah. I just like, <laughs> I'd look, I found out recently that the dolphin from Sequest DSV was a puppet. And I'm like, oh, Wait, really? What? Yeah, as a kid, I was convinced it was an actual dolphin on that set. And same with this. I was convinced they had access to whales because why wouldn't they have? Uh, you know, and uh, <laughs> well, I mean, they use. you're right. So, few of the humpback whales in the film are real. ILM devised full size animatronics and small motorized models to stand in for the real creatures. So, there you go. But they look pretty. Pretty legit. Yeah. They look pretty, pretty real. We don't have James Horner coming back for this film. Instead, we That's have yeah. Leonard Roseman. Um, he's got a huge back catalogue. Rebel Without a Cause, Beneath the Planet of the Apes. He did the animated Lord of the Rings film. So there we go. So departure from Horner. But with this film being so different visually, tonally, that's okay. Like it's okay for it to be different, but it is. But the... when it starts off, it's a big like you know. I put it on. I cut the dedication for challenge. It comes on, and then the music starts, and I'm like, "What the? Where's my James Horner?" <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is very different. But to start with the Ratha Khan, to end with the Voyage Home. I mean, what an interesting trilogy! Like it is. Yeah. Like. You can see how two ends, three starts, and then you've got those two films, which were popular and were doing well at the box office. And then for somebody to pitch The Voyage Home, I mean, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. Because it it doesn't make sense. Like, what, what do you mean? Just anyway, it's a film that I grew up absolutely loving. Um, but as a trilogy... The Genesis trilogy, if you're going to rate it out of five. It's it's difficult. It is difficult because it starts off strong, gets a little weaker with Search for Spock, and then kicks back up for me. 
with the voyage home. Uh, that being said, I'd, I'd probably give it a four out of five overall. Um, the search for Spock, whilst not on the same um, caliber with the other two, it's not such a, it's not like a steaming pile that really drags the other two down. It's just like a small dip before it like rises again before the voyage home like yourself i screw up on voyage home out of all of these i saw search for spock plenty of times but definitely voyage home a lot more than that um it wasn't until i did a full watch through of star trek as an adult going from the original series all the original series movies to next gen to all the next gen movies and then voyage and like i moved on like literally series for series for series in chronological order um, of release um, that I actually got round to watching The Wrath of Khan for the first time and was blown away. But, yeah, they're all great. I think they, the cast does get better and better in terms of uh, the main cast for these movies. They, you know, they've worked together for a long time at these points, but that familiarity, like you said, that, knowing their characters to the point of like saying to writers and directors, they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't say that they like, they, it needs to be this and drawing from their own real life experiences for certain scenes. Um, the humor in the voyage home really works as well. Not just the, the two man comedy act of uh, Kirk and Spock and like the argument over like do you like t- italian yes no yes no yes no like because he <laughs> Which can't apparently help but tell was... the truth and do you know what that was ad-libbed yeah that moment was ad-libbed and and it just it's just so natural it is so yeah. natural and like you say the cast have been together so long that they can ad-lib in character yeah they yeah. um as actors, as characters, they, yeah, they just get it. Yeah. Um, DeForest Kelly, he's like disgust at basically everything in the, the 1980s, but especially when he's going through the hospital, he's like, my God, they're barbarians. What is this? The, yeah. the dark ages? And yeah, he's like, yeah. just gives a tablet and like cures a woman of dialysis. He's like baffled, like that. They can't cure dialysis. What's wrong with these people? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Everything else he hears about them talking about radio uh, chemotherapy and stuff for cancer, and he's just like, yeah, he's like in a rage, as like a storm cloud of anger. But he's also doing the like the cheeky things of like, you're just gonna give this guy transparent aluminium? And he's like, how do we know he didn't invent it? He's like, ah, we don't. I like it. I'm <laughs> on board. Yeah, yeah. Because oh, <laughs> he can't prove otherwise. So he's like, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure, fine, whatever. Um, yeah, it's it's great. Yeah, four out of five. I mean, this these kind of set the standard of like what a Star Trek movie could be because you couldn't do the motion picture, which was a really long, slow yep. episode of Star Trek. Star Trek Have fans you... will stand for that, but not yeah, not your regular audience. Have you watched the director's cut of the motion picture? I'm sure I have. It's sitting I mean, on Paramount Plus right now. The, yeah. the, the theatrical release and the director's cut, because I have the director's cut on 4K. But the director's cut got released as a new release last year. 
Right, like mid to late then. last year, like as a new addition, or whether they've like just done something else to it, cleaned it up some more, and just re re released it. But I've never seen the director's cut, so I kind of figured maybe that's what we could do on the podcast at some point instead of just going back and doing a review of the motion picture, which yeah, I've seen a yeah, few absolutely. times as a new experience, just seeing what the differences are watching the director's cut. But yeah, I mean, for me, it's, wow, what a, what an interesting trilogy. I mean, I would say, I agree with you. Like there is a dip with the search for Spock because we want Spock back. We have to wait the duration of the movie for that to happen. Interesting things happen along the way. We get the fantastic Christopher Lloyd. Ratha Khan is clearly the better movie out of the three. But for my repeat viewing and enjoyment, going back to when I was a kid, it's The Voyage Home. The Voyage Home, for me, it plays like a classic 80s comedy. Like, you could just put it amongst them. Somebody who would say to you, do you know what? I don't want Star Trek. I don't watch Star Trek. I don't want to see Star Trek. That's what I would show them. But let me show you this then, because it's... It's the characters, but it's not the other thing that you're saying you don't want to see. It's ah, oh, it's a really accessible film. Like you, I'm going to come in at a four out of five, and you know I'm dipping because of the search for Spock, but still a good movie in in its own right. Yeah. Well, that's it for our episode all about Star Trek: The Genesis Trilogy. If you'd like to contact us about this episode or suggest a topic for an upcoming episode, you can find us on Facebook as Sounds Like Comics Podcast. You've been listening to Luke and Jay, the guys from Sounds Like Comics. See you soon. <laughs>